All right. Well, good morning. Uh, as Elliot mentioned, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to be with you today as we continue in our summer series on the parables of Jesus. Um, I don't know about you, but those of you who have been on this journey with us this summer, for me, it's been so refreshing and so challenging to consider these teachings of Jesus and to really look at them in an intense and focused way. And so just excited to engage with you one more time in another one of his parables. Well, last week I had the opportunity to hear and see a presentation by this business creativity expert named Frederick Heron. And uh, he speaks to audiences all over the world about creativity. And he starts his presentations with a series of questions, one of which is, how many of you consider yourself creative? And then people raise their hands. And uh, one interesting thing that he shared with this large group was that on average, 98% of all North Americans where he speaks raise their hand in response to that question. 98%. He then went on to share as he was talking that uh, as he's gone around the world speaking, there is uh, this one particular country that is the uh, perceives themselves to be the least creative. Now, I don't know, do you have any guesses on where in the world, what country might perceive themselves to be the least creative? Any ideas? Korea. What's that? Korea. Korea. South Korea. South Korea, yes. Uh, his, when he throws that question out in South Korea, he found that only 2% of people said that they were creative. Now, what in the world is going on here? Why such a disparity between North America and South Korea? Well, is it that South Koreans aren't creative? Well, that's not the case. If you consider innovative innovative companies like Samsung or Hyundai, that's certainly not the case. According to Heron, the difference is not their creativity, but the standard of their creativity. He explained that when he asked one of the South Koreans in the audience why it was he didn't raise his hand, that he replied, how could anyone say they are creative compared to Leonardo da Vinci? Heron's conclusion was not only that South Korea is a humble culture, but that 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 humility flows from their standard, right? The standard to which they compare themselves. So the conclusion might be, for those of us here in North America, we might have a somewhat lower standard. Thinking, of course, well, I'm more creative than my sister, right? So, Now, I share this today because the text we're going to be in, it's really going to grapple with this idea, this idea of how the standard to which we compare ourselves, it leads one of two directions, either in the direction of pride or in the direction of humility. Not only this, but we're going to learn how, how we measure our pride. It has implications beyond just our attitude. It actually has much to tell us about our standing with God. And so at this time, I'm going to invite Kim to come on up. Everybody go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 18 as she prepares to read. Read with me. Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray a prayer of humility right now because we come seeking your word. We don't come in our own innovation. We don't come with this sense of confidence in our own wisdom. At least we shouldn't. Lord, we come opening your word, asking for you to speak to us. Help us to know things we don't know, to believe things we don't believe, to be transformed by your grace, and through your word we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, according to verse 9, this story is given to a group of people who were self-righteous, and they, and they showed contempt to others. To them, verse 10 would have set up a scandalous situation that could be easily missed by today's reader. You see, in our cultural lens, especially for church people, Um, we might hear that word Pharisee and think, oh, the bad guy, right? The Pharisee, the bad guy. And we might hear tax collector and maybe at most think, oh, this must be some kind of ancient IRS employee or something. But to the original audience, this would have not been the case at all. To them, Pharisee would have been seen as a conservative, religiously faithful man. Uh, He was the type of man every Jewish mother wanted their daughter to marry, okay? He's that kind of a guy. But to the original audience, the tax collector was despised. They were hated. He was considered a traitor to his race and culture. You see, the Roman government, they would hire locals to collect taxes among the people. And their incentive for these tax collectors to do the job was they could charge whatever they wanted on top of what the Romans demanded. So These tax collectors would go from house to house, and they would add a heavy tax on top of what Rome required, and there was nothing that anyone could do about it because they came in the power and the authority of Rome itself. So these tax collectors, they were growing wealthy, incredibly wealthy, by robbing their own people, in essence. And so it makes sense, doesn't it, that they were viewed as these filthy traitors, And so when Jesus said uh, a Pharisee and a tax collector walk into a a church, he had everyone's attention. Let me me put it in today's context even a little more powerfully. Uh, Now, in light of our political climate, okay, think about the last presidential election. And I know, you know, based on what I know about our culture, we probably had a lot of strong feelings about one or the other candidate that weren't necessarily good. So if, if I was telling the story Jesus told in light of, of those people, it would be like me saying, Billy Graham and Donald Trump 
walk into a church one day. Or Billy Graham and Hillary Clinton walk into a church one day. And then I go on to tell the story where Billy Graham actually becomes the bad guy who doesn't get to heaven, but the hero of the story becomes that politician you hate the most. So it's that kind of agony. (laughs) It's that kind of, of, of scandal that Jesus was engaging in with his original audience. What he was suggesting to them rocked their categories, challenged their assumptions. So with that in mind now, let's jump into this narrative. Let's look at the prayer of the Pharisee, looking again at verses 11 and 12. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. What I want us to see here is that this Pharisee was in many ways the perfect candidate for church membership, okay? If I were interviewing him and saying, okay, tell me about yourself. I want to observe you and observe the things you do to say, is this guy a good church member? I would, I would observe things like, he starts his prayer thanking God. So he's got some category for God giving all that's good in his life. Check. He He says he's not like other men. Wow, that's really good. We're to be set apart, right? We're to be different than the surrounding culture. So so that's good, check. He starts by, you know, showing this model of faithfulness. We know this of the Pharisees. Faithful in church attendance, check. Faithful in prayer, check. Now he's really taking it up. He fasts twice a week, check. Like, that's cool, right? And even more, he's a faithful giver. Right? He ties 10% of his income every week. Check. Let's fast track this guy to elder. I mean, wow. What a, what a stellar member he would be. But there's a major problem. We see in verse 11, and the clue arises in these words in verse 11. I thank you that I'm, not, that I'm unlike other men, extortioners and just adulterers, or even this tax collector. And what this reveals is that there was a serious Flaw in this Pharisee's thinking. And, and this serious flaw is really his standard of righteousness. Similar to that opening illustration, the Pharisee, like us North Americans, he's looking in the wrong place for his standard of excellence. He says, See this extortioner, this thief, this prostitute, this filthy tax collector. Thank God I am nothing like them. So how does this compare to what the Bible teaches? I'm going to intentionally pull some scriptures from the Old Testament because this Pharisee would have been familiar with these passages. And I'm going to show you how they challenge this Pharisee's thinking in two ways. The first is, even our best efforts, when we read the Bible, we see this, even our best efforts fall desperately short of God's standard of righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 reads, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind takes us away. Psalm 14, 2 and 3, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. 
They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So we see here that that even our best efforts fall desperately short of God's holy standard. That when it comes to God's righteous standard, it doesn't matter how good we look to others. In and of themselves, our deeds, they're like filthy rags. They are ineffective. That we have all turned aside, we've all become corrupt. There is no one who does good. The second biblical idea that challenges this Pharisee's thinking is that God alone is truly holy and righteous. 1 Samuel 2.2 says, There is none holy, none, none holy like the Lord. For there is none beside you, none. There is no rock like our God. Isaiah 55.9, the Lord speaks to us. He says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So, so when the Pharisee looked to liars and cheats to set his standard of righteousness, he became proud, thinking that, thanking God that, that he's not like them. But again, what we learn in the Bible is that he's looking at the wrong standard of righteousness. Again, he looks at that standard of righteousness, and he needs to recognize that it is infinitely beyond his ability, not only to uphold these standards, but to even grasp or imagine them. I want to illustrate for you an infinite gap principle. Naomi, can you step up here for just one moment? And Stephen as well, right here. I won't make you say anything, I promise. Be very comfortable. I want you to hold that right there. Stephen, you've got to be God, so just take. don't bring it home with you, Okay. Okay, so Stephen, I want you to come really close to me here. Naomi, further, further, further away. Yeah, yeah, all the way to the edge of the stage. Okay, thank you very much. All right, what I want us to see is this. This is the Pharisees, and I'm playing the Pharisee, by the way. It comes naturally to me. I'm playing the Pharisee, and this, this is his standard of righteousness, okay? This is how he's measuring himself. As a religious man, he sees himself more godly than most. I'm close to God. I've set myself apart for him. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Illustrated powerfully. And and the confirmation of his godliness is how different he looks than this person. Right? This loser over here. This tax collector. Wow. I am so much better than them. But now I want to shift the illustration to reflect God's standard of righteousness. Now, you stay right here for a second. Naomi, come here close to me. And now, Stephen, I want you to keep going. Keep going as far as far as you can go. Now you're going to have to let your imagination take over because what we're going to do is see Stephen go all the way to the north woods of Wisconsin. We're going to see Stephen go to Canada and eventually end up at the North Pole, okay, just for the sake of illustration purposes. Now, how does this change? How does this challenge the Pharisee's standard of righteousness? See, he may or may not, and we see from Scripture, he's not all that different from the tax collector, is he? But his distance from God is so large that it negates his ability 
to even compare himself or to feel superior to anyone else. So the issue is no longer him being better than this tax collector. His reality is now defined by what really is an infinite, inaccessible gap between he and God. Thank you very much. You guys can... Now, I want to take this idea and bring it to a point of application. Because there's a lesson for all of us here. There's a lesson for those who are unbelievers. So when I say unbeliever, I mean maybe you're not a follower of Christ. You come in and this information is all new to you. What I want you to see is that if you somehow try to add value to your life um, by just being a good person, that, that there's somehow this hope that I can work my way to God, just being good enough. What I want you to see is the Bible presents a very different reality. That there's really nothing you can do to be good enough. You can't earn your way. And that even your best efforts and even the best efforts of the most religious among us, they just fall short. Now the application for those of us who are believers, who are following Christ and running hard after him, is we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Some of you may not know this, but I work part-time for um, about 100 churches in the district of the state of Wisconsin, and I was having a conversation, I think it was just last week, with Julie Spath, and we were, you know, talking about her experiences a bit, and she said, you know, Scott, in my observation, I think the biggest problem in the, the church, the big C broad church, is the problem of pride. And I was like, you know, that's a really good insight, because in my observations and in all the stories and all the various churches I've talked to or observed, I've seen the very same thing. You see, proud people are willing to hurt others in order to gain control. Proud people seek their own glory, and therefore, they don't love people well. And I bring this up because the infinite gap principle, it doesn't just expose a salvation problem for the most sinful among us, The infinite gap principle also challenges that which corrupts pastors and that which divides churches. What we need to see is that the infinite gap principle should create such deep humility in every one of us that it changes us. It causes us to live and love in a different way. Now, as a side note, I can't help but think how Opposed, this worldview I'm discussing is to the kind of hatred that we observed in Charlottesville over a week ago. You see, when we embrace the ideology that says that we are somehow superior to others due to race or education or even worldview, what it reveals is that the fear of God is not in us. This is why we stand against these things. This, it's not because we are better as Christians. It's because we recognize that our ability to love and value those, even again with opposing views, must flow from a humility that is produced deeply within us because of our awareness of the infinite gap and the infinite need that we have for the mercy and grace of God. So I've got a homework assignment for you today. I want you to find someone who will be honest with you 
And this, this may mean you even say, hey, uh, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to be really honest with me. I want you to ask them, am I a humble person? Do you see in me a humble and contrite spirit? And if the answer is less than encouraging, then man, you need to embrace this reality, this gap, this, this principle as something more than just an intellectual understanding that led me to faith. This is a truth that should challenge us to just be a humble people, to love well. And this leads us really quite nicely into the prayer of the tax collector. So let's look at that at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. As we explore exactly what's happening here, we need to know a little bit more about the context. So let me fill you in. The first thing to know is that the tax collector would have actually been forbidden from being in the temple. Okay, and that's because he was ritually unclean. So he shouldn't have even been there. He would have been forbidden from attendance, right? And so his very presence in the temple would have been offensive. They would have been angry and upset. It would have been scandalous, as I mentioned in the introduction. And and this might suggest why Jesus describes him as being far off. And and then this idea that he's beating his chest, this would have made an odd or an offensive situation even stranger. Because to beat one's chest, it's a rare thing. And it describes in ancient culture this, this deep and dramatic sign of grieving and despair. And so, again, as if it wasn't odd enough that he was there, now this detestable tax collector is making a scene. He's openly weeping. He's beating his chest in grief. So so what could have led to this despair? What could have led to him being this way? Well, according to Sinclair Ferguson, it's helpful to understand that what would have happened in the temple service, uh, it would be helpful to understand what happened preceding this moment in the temple service. You see, earlier in the service, a lamb had been selected by the priest. And this lamb was washed carefully. It was examined intensely to determine if it's worthy of its purpose. Is it without spot? Is it without blemish? And then this little perfect lamb was bound to the altar and with the skill of a surgeon was killed. Its blood was gathered and then sprinkled to illustrate the needed sacrifice for sin. The meat of this lamb was then offered as a burnt offering, and during all of these elements, the people stood in silence and in awe. Now, not many of us have seen an animal sacrifice, but its meaning in that day was quite obvious, because as people raised their hands while the aroma of that meat reached the heavens, they were hoping that God would extend grace and mercy to them. And it would have been following these profound moments in the service when there would be a time of personal devotion and prayer. 
the moment at which Jesus' story begins. Is it any wonder the tax collector responds as he does? He doesn't lift his eyes to heaven to pray, as was the tradition of the day. No, he looks down in brokenness. He beats his chest and prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What's interesting about this tax collector's response is that the sacrifice of the lamb, it didn't appear to bring comfort to him, right? It brought conviction. That's very, very interesting. But I think it's because this tax collector recognized what the Pharisee was ignorant to see that even this sacrifice was not adequate for the depth of his sin. This infinite gap principle, it had become real to him in those moments. And what's even more fascinating about this prayer of the tax collector is the original Greek word that is used to describe mercies. Now, some of you may not know this, but the original uh, text of the Bible is written in Greek, and, and Greek had a lot of you know, many different meanings. Uh, could, many different words could have been used for mercy, but a, but a unique word was used that is very, very significant. The word this tax collector used is where we get the word propitious. Propitious. He prayed, God, be propitious to me, a sinner. Now, I know that's an uncommon word. Most of us don't know that. I have to look it up every time I read it and remind myself. What is this word? It was like he was saying, my sins are so great, God. You need to propitiate. You need to stand in the gap. You need to bridge this divide. You need to substitute yourself because only you can fix this infinite gap created by my sin. Now, why is this word so significant in the historic context of this parable? Because in two weeks, from the moment this parable was delivered by Jesus, he was going to walk the road to the cross In order to what? To become a propitiation. To be the sacrificial lamb, the ultimate substitute for sin. Listen to these words, Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all, and and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the perfect time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see the parallels? It's unbelievable. So this wicked tax collector's eyes, they were opened that day to nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ, than this good news of what he was about to do. And he knew he needed a substitute. He knew he needed God to step in and become the justifier to do what he couldn't do for himself. Now John Stott, he wrote about this 
idea with these words. Follow this quote. The concept of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. So we've seen this morning the portrait of two different kinds of people, right? We've seen the religious man who seems to do all the right things but is proud, assuming that his actions could somehow win him approval with God. And then we've seen the despised sinner who humbles himself, recognizing his need for the mercy and grace of God. Now, one of the things that I want to highlight for a moment is we just think, what is God wanting to tell us through this? I want, to, I want to highlight the context of parenting. Now, some of you aren't parents or you, you know, your kids are now out of the house. We're, we're, but, but we're a community, so we can all relate to this idea of parenting, and we've all been parented, Right? So uh, I want to think about this for a moment. I want us to consider the possibility that these principles of the gospel that we're looking at today, that they teach us that for our children and for our homes, hear this, humility is more important than obedience. Now, I know that statement kind of rocks our categories a bit, but consider this question. Is it better to have a child who seems perfectly obedient or a child who is openly disobedient and yet remorseful. I'd argue that once we understand the infinite gap principle, then we see that righteous behavior done for the purpose of avoiding punishment or pleasing parents is just as destructive as a rebellious and non-remorseful heart. In other words, we need to watch closely that we don't raise children who are so good at obeying and pleasing that they never understand their need for God. So how do we raise our children to be humble? Before I answer that with a few additional thoughts, I want to share an example from my own experience. Uh, My siblings and I, we were raised in a home where our parents were always just very proud of us, and they loved us loved us very well, continued to love us very well. Uh, It wasn't uncommon, I remember, on many occasions that there would be someone over visiting and my dad would just start to go on and on about his children's accomplishments. And it was an embarrassing experience for me. Now, in addition to this dynamic, personally for me, uh, you know, I came to faith early, became a pastor, you know, got married, had a whole mess of kids, you know, just things seemed to have gone very, very well. And, and though uh, our parents uh, always meant well, I mean, they always did the best they can with what they knew, what happened in this context in light of my sinful heart is that there began to take root this performance-based success idolatry, this way of thinking. And in increasing measure, my life became more focused on maintaining appearances and living up to these standards. And and I would do that in order to somehow feel more acceptable, to feel more approved by others. Now, in a world that 
talks again and again from the movies we watch to the experts we listen to in the self-help section. It goes on and on again about how a positive self-image is so important. And, and because of that, I really never questioned this experience in my life. And this is probably why, why if, we're, if we're honest, if those of you who've raised kids in Christian circles, it is so difficult at times to be with other parents and hear them talk about how wonderful their kids are, right? I mean, we just do this at times. But, but I began to question my performance identity in a new way when God took me through some times of suffering in recent years. And, and I realized there were some entrenched ways of thinking. There were some entrenched sinful narratives in my life. And, and what I realized is that the, for me, what was the he-can-do-no-wrong pattern that I tried to live up to, it was actually a yoke. It was a deep and heavy burden in my life. And I was working myself to the bones, trying to uphold an image I could never sustain. And, and what I found I desperately needed was permission to fail. And it's not that I didn't fail, because believe me, I failed all the time. But when you're playing that part in your life that I know some of you can relate to, you become very good at minimizing failure. You become very good at hiding behind appearances. You see, I had lived like the Pharisee. I was so focused on outward appearance that I neglected to recognize the true condition of my heart. And friends, this is why a culture of humility is so important in our churches and in our homes. I read this little booklet in the last few weeks called From Pride to Humility by Stuart Scott. And he has a great little diagnostic tool in here where he lists out manifestations of humility that we can find in Scripture. I don't have time to list references with this, but I'm just going to share a few of these examples. A humble person recognizes and trusts God's character. A humble person sees themselves as having no right to question or judge God. A humble person focuses on Christ, prays often, is overwhelmed with God's undeserving grace and goodness. A humble person is grateful towards others, is gentle and patient, sees themselves as no better than anyone else. A humble person enjoys close friendships. A humble person has an accurate view of their own gifts and abilities. He or she is a a good listener. They talk about others only if it is good or for their good. A humble person is gladly submissive and obedient to authority. A humble person is thankful for criticism or rebuke, has a teachable spirit, is quick to admit when they are wrong, and quick to grant forgiveness. A humble person is honest and open about who they are in the areas in which they need to grow. So how do we prioritize humility in parenting? I think we do so by giving our children permission to fail and teaching them this unbelievable, beautiful pattern we talk a lot about here, this pattern of confession and repentance and the unbelievable comfort of grace and reconciliation. We do so as well by humbling ourselves often when we fail. 
seeking the forgiveness and grace of our kids. And finally, we do so by creating a gospel-centered culture in our home that embodies these manifestations of humility. So to conclude, what I want to do is emphasize that whether you tend to be a Pharisee that I identify with, or maybe you identify with this unrepentant tax collector, what I want you to know is we both have a problem, and it's called pride. In today's parable, we got a glimpse at a rebel who was redeemed because he humbled himself and he admitted his need. And according to verse 14, that day, he went home to his house justified. Tim Keller, he discusses the pride of the Pharisee and tax collector, explaining one form is being very bad and breaking all the rules, and the other form is being very good and keeping all the rules and becoming self-righteous. In both instances, rather than face the truth of their heart and humbly look to God's forgiveness and transforming grace to change, the person pridefully chooses to live his own way. Are you choosing to live your own way? Are you attempting to gain your acceptance of God and others through either your rebellion or your righteousness? Father, he is inviting you to pray a prayer this morning. Have mercy on me. To replace this infinite gap I talked about with his infinite glory. As you turn your eyes from self to him, from rebellion to rest, from performance to peace and acceptance. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for our pride. Even today, I stand here now feeling the weight of that tendency in my life. But Lord, there's something that's very important, and I I hope all of us hear it today. And it's that this isn't one more brick in the wall. This isn't one more load to carry. The invitation to a humble life, Lord, as I believe we see it here, is an invitation to rest, to just be at peace, to jump off of the hamster wheel of trying to make it on our own, trying to be tough, trying to prove something that we can never really prove. Lord, I just pray you do a real work in our hearts today, that you'd set many of us free both by the transforming work of the gospel to save, but also by a gospel which really invites us to a different way of living and a different way of loving. So I pray you do that work in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.